hi, Corey. Guess what? What? This is a podcast. What? Where am I? I know. We are both super tired. The, I've seen there is no light at the end of a tunnel. We've been sitting in this room for a week now. Um, we, we actually I record wish. this in real time. And so a week ago, you heard that we were tired. And now you hear that we're still in this room. So what is this podcast? Side Talks. Side Talks. The official podcast for the Sidewalk Film Festival and Sidewalk Film Center and Cinema. The fact that it's two things now instead of just one explains why we are tired. And I'm Corey Craft. I'm a programmer for the Sidewalk Film Festival and Cinema. And I'm Rachel Morgan. I'm the creative director for the Sidewalk, all of that stuff, Sidewalk stuff. All things cinema. And now, a look at what we're watching this week. So, Rachel, what have you been watching lately? Oh, man, you know nothing. Just sitting around. <laughs> Watching birds. No, uh, just a ton of stuff. And so I actually am going to talk a little bit about a film that's on the lineup that I haven't talked enough about. I think because we didn't lock it quite early enough for it to hit the sneak peek and a lot of other stuff. Mm -hmm. And that is a film that I believe that you've seen, but you can correct me if I'm wrong, American Dharma. No, I haven't actually. Well, it is the Steve Bannon documentary, but the other we, we screened a Steve, a Steve Bannon documentary through our Screen Talk series, and it was very, very good. Yeah. Um, and it was called The Brink, and it was very good. But the one that I'm actually talking about, American Dharma, is Errol Morris's um, Steve Bannon doc. And man, oh man, um, it is really, really terrifying, um, really, really interesting. And it is Errol in there face to face with Steve Bannon and doing what Errol does best, which is just like you know, head-on interview, literally. Um, it is not a pleasant film. It is not a film that's going to make you feel good about the world, even if you're a Steve Bannon doc, because, um, I'm sorry, I've lost, I am ongoing, I'm very little sleep. Even if you're a Steve Bannon fan, yeah. which um, you're probably not listening to the podcast, just quite frankly, if you are, but maybe, you never know. Um, so if you're, a Steven, if you're a Steve Bannon documentary or fan, either way... <laughs> Um, I don't think this will be pleasant for you. Regardless, his outlook is not one that is. Uh, I mean, he play. Look, they they dress him up like the Grim Reaper on SNL for a reason. He doesn't come with a great message. He comes with a message of like, it's over, it's done, buckle down, we're all going to die. This is in there. Yeah, that's what I'm watching. That's that's one Happy reason days. I haven't seen that film yet. <laughs> honestly, just because the summer was enough of a of a bummer in many. <laughs> Uh, respects as it was and I didn't rush to to watch that link but I'm happy we program it um, Errol Morris is one of the greats he's one of the greats and he set shit on fire in this documentary and I mean that literally set shit on fire in this documentary well I'm I'm looking forward to seeing it one it's day it's good it's really good I don't know can you handle it? it yeah what are you watching um I have now seen Quentin Tarantino's new film, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, twice. I knew this was coming. Yeah, it's coming. Um, look, I pretty enthusiastically defended Tarantino as a filmmaker in one of our five-minute five minute fights a couple episodes ago. Uh, so I'm on the record about how I feel about him as a filmmaker. I think this film, individually, even divorced from his recent output, exceeded my expectations yeah i think that this film is probably his most ambitious mature um weirdly sentimental and sweet uh mesmerizing just electric work that hmm. he's made in 
who knows how long, possibly ever. I'm in that kind of mood coming out of the theater, or I have been We've both seen it times. twice already. It. It's been out for like 10 minutes. And, yeah. So by the time this comes out, this episode comes out, um, I probably will have seen it maybe at least once more. Um, it's a movie that, that presents a fully realized world of the sort that I get completely caught up in yeah. and lost in. You know, divorcing the plot from it completely, just experientially, this thing is so textured and sensual. Um, reviewers have mentioned how, like, fetishistically, Tarantino has rebuilt 1969 Los Angeles in this movie, lingering on neon signs, on marquees, on uh, just having shots and sequences of people driving in cars with the wind blowing, listening to the radio presenting not only the songs on the radio, but the the vintage advertisements and things like that. I wouldn't use the word fetishistically, though, except for the foot thing. That's totally, you know, its own thing. It's valid. Um, I would use the word reverentially. Hmm. This is this is Tarantino's Garden of Eden story. And right. It happens to be a story sort of on the margins of the Manson family. Right. Um, Manson... I mean, the word Manson is never used in the film. Manson is the serpent who has entered the Garden of Eden and um, is going to bring it to an end. And with that, you know, thematically, this movie is dealing with what it means to fade out gracefully, what it means when the world, when culture has left you behind. Right. And he explores that through Leonardo DiCaprio's character, Rick Dalton, this sort of fading cowboy star and Brad Pitt's character, Cliff Booth, this stuntman who's not really a stuntman anymore. Sure. But that could just as well apply to Tarantino himself, um, a filmmaker who, you know, we we could and have debated his relevance uh, in 2019. Um, I think this film shows indisputably that he's still relevant, that he's still a master of this craft. Is he only relevant when he's questioning his own relevance? No, I I mean, I don't want to start another fight (laughs) because I think that The Hateful Eight, for instance, is a movie that came out exactly one year too early. I like The Hateful Eight. You know what? I haven't seen this film, so I'm not going to jump all over you yet because it would be really unfair. But um, let's start a new segment right now. And it's it's like, Corey predicts. (laughs) Do you like that? Am I going to like this film? I think you'll like it more than you do other of his films. I think you will find it too long. But I wonder why. What's the runtime on this? Two thing? hours and forty-one minutes. But you can just long pause right there. Say it again. <laughs> it's two hours and forty-one minutes. Ugh. But I think that every single scene has a purpose, and I love the sort of atmosphere that he just sure. sort of lingers in. That you just and maybe get lost that makes in. up for it. I think it does. I, I guess I'll see. You know what? It sounds to me like it's more than 41 minutes too long. Well, I'll say this. Um, I know that you, you've previously recommended um, Karina Longworth's podcast, You Must Remember This. Love that. It's wonderful. A few years ago, she did a whole season on the Manson family. It's terrific. It's really, I really highly recommend listening and to that. I think that Tarantino, to some degree, was inspired by that. Because this movie sort of revels in those intersections that Longworth explores in that podcast. He should give credit where credit's due, which is not his strong suit. Not necessarily. Um, 
Did he thank her in the credits? I didn't notice that. I wonder. But anyway, um, if you've listened to that podcast, if you've if you have treasured that sort of story, right? Um, I think that you will find a lot to like about. Then give this. your money to Tarantino. If you've listened to that podcast for free and enjoyed it, then give your money to Tarantino, who steals things and doesn't give people credit. Well, Ooh, and also also buy a copy it. of Karina Longworth's new book, which is about Howard Hughes and all of the the women that he dated. True, um, which is a really great book. I agree. And guess what Tarantino's not doing? Listening to this podcast. So uh, if you are um, hurting no one's feelings, if you want to get in touch, get in touch to like hang out or something, um, you know, we could talk. I, I know a lot about movies like I don't podcast know at sidewalkfest.com. I don't know if you've listened to this. Uh, <laughs> I know a lot about movies. I've got a pretty good like memory for that sort of stuff. We can just hang. I, I mean, we don't, we don't even have to do that. Like, you know, <laughs> Quentin, just um, just get in touch and like, you know. And I'm happy to discuss with him how he sucks in Pulp Fiction, so. Oh, wow. But, you know. Whatever. It's good taste in coffee. Boy, this is getting 41 minutes too long. <laughs> and now we'd like to welcome Charlie Brown Sanders the third to the studio for his segment, Film History Minute with Charlie Brown. Today I'd like to talk about Hail Caesar. Released in 2016, Hail Caesar is the 17th feature film from the Coen Brothers. Loved by critics, but not by moviegoers, who gave it a D-minus in movie polls, I happen to love it. The movie follows two days in 1951 in the life of Eddie Mannix, played by Josh Brolin, the general manager of Capitol Pictures, the same fictional film studio from Barton Fink. Many of the storylines are based on true Hollywood scandals that were hushed up. Brolin's character was inspired by a real Eddie Mannix, an executive at MGM whose job was to make problems for the studio go away. Unlike his depiction in the film, Mannix was a ruthless thug with ties to organized crime, as he is portrayed by Bob Hoskins in Hollywoodland. Brolin had been in Gangster Squad, a movie set in the same time period, so the concern was to make him look completely different. He was encouraged to gain weight, let his hair go gray, grow a mustache, and he got a perm. Hail Caesar was his third film for the Coens, and the first time he said that he ever received praise from them. George Clooney, whose character's kidnapping sets up the film, had first heard of the idea for it during the making of O Brother, Where Art Thou? And he had badgered the Coens to write it. For their part, the Coens claimed they were just making conversation with George on set to pass the time, and he had thrown out many film ideas they had never intended to pursue, one involving Adolf Hitler as a talent scout. In any case, they did write it, and Clooney was cast. It was his fourth Coen Brothers movie, and the fourth time his character was, in his words, a nitwit. Clooney plays Baird Whitlock, a Clark Gable-style movie star who in one scene talks about working with Danny Kaye, who had starred in White Christmas with George's Aunt Rosemary. Scarlett Johansson plays Deanne Moran, a swimming star in the style of Esther Williams. For the scene, the Coens completely recreated Esther's set on her former stage with her original pool, which had been in storage for more than 50 years. The water ballet troupe Aquililies was commissioned to choreograph a performance. They worked for months on their hour-long show, which appears for only two minutes in the film, but the group said the chance to swim in Esther's pool was a dream come true. Channing Tatum's character was based on Gene Kelly, considered one of cinema's best dancers. For his scene, the Coens wanted an over-the-top musical tap dance number. Problem was, Tatum had never tap danced, but he rose to the challenge. He crammed 10 years of tap lessons into three months to perform the routine perfectly. Cast members new to working with the Coens were impressed with their meticulous planning. All the actors were given scripts with storyboards attached and words written phonetically for how the accents should sound. 
The environment on set was always relaxed and easygoing, and the production ran smoothly due to the long-standing relationships the Coens have with their crew. Costume designer Mary Zofries began working with them in 1996. For Hail Caesar, she created more costumes than in any Cohen film, but a tight budget meant she did a lot of sewing herself. She didn't ask for more money, she says, because once the budget is set, the brothers never go back to the studio for more funding. They believe the reason they enjoy so much autonomy is that they deliver exactly the film they promise, on time and on budget. The Cohen brothers' longtime collaborator, cinematographer Roger Deakins, was committed to shooting digital, but the Coens felt due to the content of the picture, real film stock should capture Hail Caesar. However, this proved more difficult than planned, resulting in issues with color grading and film stock availability. Deakins is quoted as saying, I don't want to do that again. Frankly, I don't think the infrastructure's there. While Hail Caesar has been described as a screwball comedy, there's actually something more sinister beneath the surface. The movie shows how it was incredibly dangerous to be gay, how women had no control over their bodies, and how the studios willfully ruined thousands of lives in order to create moments of entertainment for a fickle public. Get ready for a five-minute fight. Five-minute round one. Fight. Five-minute fight. Here we are again. So, Rachel... For the September Book and Film Club, as we've alluded yeah. to in past episodes, you have selected the film Twilight. Get ready, haters. Directed by Catherine Hardwick <laughs> from 2008, the first film in the Twilight Saga to discuss. And you've selected a pretty interesting sounding uh, set of critical essays yeah. on the film. But I would like to bring up uh, the Twilight Saga in today's five-minute fight uh, because those movies are indisputably interesting and weird to discuss but they're terrible they're really enjoyable and there's nothing wrong with that okay they're really really enjoyable i have had a great time every time i have gone to the movies to see these they do exactly what they should do they're an adaptation of a bad book they're a lot of fun the casting is amazing they're really enjoyable to watch some of them have some really skillful editing um the performances are weird but fun i i, I understand i'm setting myself up once again to be like oh, whatever whatever don't care i like twilight i think you like twilight more than Kristen stewart and robert pattinson do Oh, point. for sure. And I like Kristen Stewart more than Robert Pattinson like Kristen Stewart. So that's part of it. <laughs> I, have no, I have no comeback for I that. I mean, there is no comeback I, for that. I, I just, I, I, these movies are so wooden and stilted. And it's not just Hardwick's film, though she probably pretty undeservedly caught a lot of flack for that. It's all of the other films from the male directors who inherited the Twilight Saga from her uh, in all of the sequels. Uh, Stewart and Pattinson seem checked out and uncommitted. The rest of the you cast... You just described Kristen Stewart's acting style. No, no, I didn't, because there's a difference between a flat affect <laughs> and just being completely unengaged with the material. You look at something like Personal Shopper, which is a great movie that we both love, right. with probably her best performance in it, you know, she's playing kind of a, a reserved character, but she's totally engaged with that in ways that she is not in the Twilight movies. And you don't think that there's some level at which that they understand the film that they're in. And that's part of what's going on here is that they're sort of everybody's riffing on this sort of like acknowledgement that that the that this is, you know, sort of like 
preteen and you know what there's no I don't want to underestimate a preteen audience I mean I think there's something really valid about that but it's you know for, for lack of a better way of phrasing it it's it's sort of like preteen fodder and it's really enjoyable and the same way that a soap opera actor doesn't necessarily mean mm. that they're bad they go into a soap opera and they're there for what they're there for and that is sort of what's going on here it's sort of almost like a a nod and a laugh to the audience you don't agree I don't I I think that there is there are moments throughout those films that do kind of approach that sort of knowing, almost high camp thing. Right. Um, the first movie has less of that, I think, than the sequels do. Um, well, I think that they were just sort of, they were getting into the groove, yeah. as Madonna says, and trying to kind of like, fig- you know, but I do think that's where they're headed. Is it, da- is it Dakota Fanning? Is that right? Am yeah. I saying, okay, Dakota Fanning throws an infant into a fire in oh, the series. Oh, I know. So there you go, I win. Well, okay, that moment in isolation is enjoyable. That moment in context is enjoyable. That moment uh, in the context of five films of, you know, I'll accept that certain types of brooding love triangle stories are just not for me. They're not meant for me, but there is maybe like one, maybe one and a half films worth of actual plot in these movies. No, bull. I mean, you got to get all the way to where what's his D imprints on an infant and then marries her like You're right. That is a long later. journey. You're, that's, that's a Lord of the <laughs> so, Rings style epic. Exactly. Exactly. I am glad these films exist. They are not supposed to be, you know, held up to these these awesome standards that you put people like Leonardo DiCaprio up against. But they are really enjoyable. They sell a lot of tickets. They're really, really fun. I think that there is subtext in them that's really enjoyable to dig into. And I just think that they, I don't think there's anything wrong with these. They're re- they, they are at times really well produced. They're really well edited at, at moments. But see, it's the at times and at moments that I take issue with because I don't think consistently these are particularly well done films. I would disagree with that. I think they're pretty consistently well done films. Are they cheesy? Are they fun? Are they ridiculous? Absolutely. Is that in line with what they're adapting? Yes, absolutely. That is the series, right? It's not like they've taken The Catcher in the Rye. And and you know and cast Robert Pattinson and, and Kristen Stewart and that might not be bad if they did that yeah yeah that might be really bad if they did that I don't I mean, know I don't I know which way it. that goes I could but see it. but regardless that's not what this is it is you know it is an adaptation of a bad book and I think it's really enjoyable and really fun and mm. and you know not everything has to be so. It, look, we just looked at a ton of films for the festival, and a lot of those were really great, and some of those were not so great. And I certainly have been doing this for quite a while, so I can tell you that 10 years ago, before people, you know, when it was really hard to, to afford a camera, yeah. I've seen some bad production people sure. over the years. I'm a teacher, too, and I teach production. I've seen some bad production. This is not bad production. It's this, Okay, but I think it's too slavishly devoted to every single word of those bad books you know, they, they had this fan base to appeal to. We're out of time. We're out of time. Oh, well. They had this fan base to appeal to. And <laughs> he doesn't care. I'm just blowing through it. He doesn't and, care. And, um, you know, Kristen I guess Stewart. that they Kristen did. Stewart. They adapted the book. Kristen Stewart. But at what cost? The, the at just, the cost of my enjoyment. Well, I'm glad you enjoyed them. I sure didn't. Sam, I feel like I, I know where this is going. What but maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm wrong. Where do you think I don't know. Going? I think, you know. I'm never on the popular side of an issue. I'm okay. I'm just gonna say I'm for sure with Rachel on this one. Spoiler alert. Um, 
Like, I used to be so anti-Twilight and just thought it was the dumbest, silliest thing and not even worth, like, paying attention to. Just, like, like some boy band, One Direction-style thing that just, like, like you said, preteen fodder, for lack of a better term. Um, and then I realized, like, it... N- not to say that it's deeper on the service level, but it's entertaining for sure. Like you said, it's cheesy, fun, and ridiculous, but in a super entertaining, easy-to-consume easy to way. Um, and... Yeah, it's just fun. And plus, they kind of introduced the world to Robert Pattinson slash the next Batman. So they have that going for them. Um, and yeah, there aren't really standards to to hold it against. So it just, it just on its own, it's it's just Twilight. It's bizarre and ridiculous and just crazy. It's just Twilight. <laughs> um, and it isn't like... Rachel said it's an adaptation of a bad book, which means it's the perfect adaptation because it's exactly the source material. They adapted the bad book into a bad movie, which turned into a good movie, if that makes sense. So yeah, Corey loses. Twilight is really good. <laughs> <laughs> I was not expecting that. <sighs> but Sam. I'm very pleasantly I'm surprised. You know what that sound is. It sounds like lightning, lightning just struck, and it's time for the filmmaker lightning round. Uh, earlier today, as we we're recording this, it was announced that Martin Scorsese's new film, The Irishman, is opening the New York Film Festival in September. Uh, this is a long-awaited return to making mob movies with his close collaborator, Robert De Niro. So, though that's co- completely coincidental, because <laughs> oh, we yeah. already planned to do it. Right. Um. Today, we're going to take on one of the great American filmmakers, Martin Scorsese. What's a Scorsese movie you love? I love a lot of them, um, but I'm going to go on record and say that maybe Casino is my favorite. Whoa. Yeah. You know, I teach a lot of different films, uh-huh. but I, teach, I bring up a lot the scene where um, when Robert De Niro's character first sees Sharon Stone's character and she's sort of hustling at the, yeah. at the craps table um, and there's a music shift and this moment of recognition that, oh, he's, he's about to just fall into the, the rabbit hole that, you know, is going to ruin his life, really. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it's, it's that it's sort of a moment where you see, I don't know if it's love or lust, but it's it's certainly a tornado that is Sharon Stone. Yeah. Um, and that moment is just really, really lovely filmmaking. Um, and so I, I think I go to Casino because I revisit it so much for scenes like that. Mm, yeah. Yeah, that's a really great moment in a movie that, well, might come up later. We'll just say that. Okay. Uh, a movie by Scorsese that I love. I mean, I'm going to set aside the sort of the canonical choices. Sure. Right? That's fair. Taxi Driver, Raging Bull, Goodfellas. You know what? They're great. We all know they're great. Let's set them aside. Nobody's going to be mad at you for mentioning those films, I don't think. Those are wonderful. I'm pretty sure that it's widely accepted that those are in the (laughs) canon, but we'll just just put them aside. And I'll say uh, that a movie by Scorsese I love is his 2011 children's film, Hugo. It's a great film. It's so good. It made me cry. Sorry. I I just had a mic bump. But in in res- out of respect, well, it's for the a, camera bump moment in um, Casino, right? Is it Casino? I think, or so. is it Goodfellas? Anyway, uh, I don't know. Yeah. I'm interrupting you about Hugo, and I want to hear. So I'm sorry. Uh, Hugo is just it's um, 
a film history lesson packaged as a delightful film for children, and it works on both levels. Um, the filmmaker, the historical figure, Georges Méliès, is a character in this movie. We see a lot of beautifully, meticulously restored uh, Méliès shorts um, in this movie. And Scorsese, you know, of course, when this film was initially presented, presented it in 3D as well. Um, it works on just about every level that uh, a film like that can work, and it's just a beautiful, sweet, um, gripping film um, that you wouldn't necessarily expect from the filmmaker who made Taxi Driver. <laughs> that's true. It is a love letter to filmmaking in a way that's really, really wonderful. I, I Again, I teared up during the sort of Melius um, montage yeah. that happens. Um, and it really is, too, a lot about this, um, as we've been talking a lot about lately, this sort of what happens when this innovative thing that you've done has become passe. Yeah. yeah. And I think that Scorsese can relate to that. You know, what happens when the thing that was so innovative now is just so, you know, eye roll. Yeah. Um, and a lovely, I agree, a lovely, lovely film and, and a little bit different from his other work. Mm-hmm. I think so. So what's a movie by Scorsese that you you like but you might not love? I'll just go with one that I don't like at all. Is that okay? Sure. I mean, that's the next question, but sure. Oh, that's the next question. Yeah. Well, then I'll just wait. I'll just wait. Um, oh, that one's tough because I do kind of, you know. Extremes with Scorsese? A little bit. Yeah. So I'm going to kind of, I'm just going to pass on that. Okay. Yeah, I think my answer for that is Gangs of New York, which I I love it. I respect it for its ambition. I think it's got a magnificent, like towering Daniel Day Lewis performance. Tapping on his eyeball, he taps on his eyeball with a knife. How do you not love this film? Because, and I know this is kind of contradictory to a previous uh, five minute. Oh, good, I like it. Can we reference this in the five minute fight? DiCaprio and, and and Cameron Diaz are not very good. Oh my gosh. Are you serious? The Great American Worm did something that wasn't very good all the time. He has his moments. He has his moments. This is not one of them, this and neither is, is about half his IMDb page. Okay. I'm not more. That's insane. But, Sorry. Um but I oh, like this film. I can't e- I can't even believe it. I, I solidly like this movie. I just don't love it. I love it. Uh, Okay, a movie that I I usually phrase this, um, people might like more than you do, but you've already said this is a movie you outright don't like. Here we go. I know where you're going. Go ahead, put on your seatbelt, get ready for the rage out. Does somebody want to come restrain Corey? Here it goes. I'm too tired to like. I really dislike The Wolf of Wall Street. I don't see. And I don't want to turn this into a five minute fight. No reason to. But that's cut from the same cloth as as Goodfellas and Casino in so many ways that other than your personal dislike for DiCaprio. Yeah, part of the cloth is Leo's face. I don't understand how you so strongly dislike this one. <laughs> like I, I It get, feels out of touch to mm. me. It feels really out of touch. I know, and I get that people really love this film. I don't exactly get why. I really don't. I think the comedy that's supposed to be in there is uh, beaten over the head. I think that 
there are moments that feel like this is, don't you think this is cool? I just feel like somebody's in my ear, like, don't you think this is cool? Don't you think this is cool? This is so edgy. This is so raw. This is so, and it's not, it's, it feels out of touch to me. It feels lame and out of touch and sad. Mm, I think it's supposed to be a little sad. I think that one of the things though, that he's doing, um, it's closer to American psycho than a lot of other things, you know, presentation of these yuppie assholes sure uh and their stupid antics and you know he's too close to that and mm. leo's too close to that to present anything real i'm sorry but that's really the way that it is well i don't agree but okay well we well, we'll again we'll not a five on. minute fight but yeah. that is certainly my answer so what's yours um a film by scorsese that i don't like very much uh it's an unfair question right so yeah like i'll I mean, just because you named it as your favorite, I'm going to say it, bitch. I, a film that I don't like as much as other people but still think is very good is Casino. How dare you? I don't like it. I don't like How it as much as everybody else seems dare to. dare you? Because I, I, think it's, I think it's a pretty clear step down from a lot of other stuff that he's done. You're crazy. Yeah, I'll oh, that, accept that. So Wolf of Wall Street is not a step down, but Casino is. Yeah. And like that we like yeah. all the stuff, like James Wood's weird stuff. I, I mean, what do you mean? You know what? Again, not a five minute fight. So I'm going to let you off the hook and we'll move on. Thanks. But Casino is a great film. It's a very, very good movie. Number one. Not number one. That's insane. Number one. I can't do that. All right. And a film by him you think you need to see again. A lot of them. Yeah, me too. But I'm going to go with New York, New York. It's been so. It's been a very long time. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm, I, I don't know. Something about the film I'm like wanting to revisit. Yeah. Uh, but I'm, there's certainly a lot. I think there's a lot there. Yeah. He's got a very long IMDb page. Yes, he does. Uh, I'm going to go with The Age of Innocence. Um, Ooh, that I don't. I don't. It's got that Enya song. With that montage, I'm not really, I'm thinking that might even be up there with Wolf. Oh, no, I love that movie. Oh, boy. I, lo- I think that movie is beautiful. Let's rewatch and maybe Five Minute Fight. Okay. And now, Fast Film Terms. Fast Film Terms. Fast Film Terms. What's a backlot? Uh, a backlot is a, a set uh, on, at a movie studio. That's right. Um, or I guess a space where different sets can be constructed. Yeah, it's like a big open space. I mean, this is clearly back in, you know, more more frequently used during the back in the studio days. But did Tarantino use some of these possibly on his, uh, on, on the most recent film? Possibly. A lot of that appears to be shot on location, but, uh, but I wouldn't be too surprised. Sure. Especially for some of the, um, uh, a lot of the scenes in this take place during the filming of a Western TV show. So for the Western street set, um, that was probably, you know, constructed on a back lot somewhere. Yeah. And so this back lot is a sort of open air area of a a studio lot where you could construct, oh, you know, the town square or or a house or what have you. Um, And we'll just leave it at that. We talked a long time about that. So that's our fast film terms for this episode. Sounds good. Hey, you know what it's time for? I'm I'm afraid to ask. What's this shit? You went really high that time. I, I'm getting better and better and better all the time. Or worse, depending on how <laughs> you look at it. So I'm not giving you a lot to go on here. So this is going to be a true test. And, okay. and to the point where I might be, we might have to re, you know revisit this. Okay. But I'm in the cardio cinema. I'm on the stage. Um, I'm trying to think of what a shortened word would be for like the stairmaster. I'm on the, I mean, you say stair, but that sounds stupid. Yeah. So you're in the, the fire, stu- the fire escape. Right. And I'm not on that anyway, cause that's too damn hard. But anyway, I'm looking at the screen. Is that a piece of ham 
oh no, it's Liam Neeson. Oh my God. (laughs) He's in a military uniform. He's doing some very close talking to a man who looks like, boy, oh boy, you shouldn't just be the average person in the military. You should be an actor. Do you know what film this is? So that's the only clue that I have. I know. Um, The scene goes on for a long time, longer than I can look at what is Liam Neeson. And he's close talking. In a white military outfit. military outfit. So it's like, I think that's Navy. Mm. Mm, Maybe I'm wrong. Oh, I know what this is. I know what this is. Let's hear it. This is Battleship. Okay. The adaptation of the board game, Battleship. You're kidding me. Starring Alexander Skarsgård and Rihanna. Oh, okay. So wait, this is a fake joke movie from SNL. (laughs) This is a fake joke movie that I definitely saw in theaters because it's real. So it's a remake of a board game. Uh, Yes. Featuring a piece of ham and Rihanna. Uh, Yeah. Well, I don't know about the ham thing because I generally like Liam Neeson. uh, But this is a movie in which the Navy, they're doing some um, exercises out in the sea and then they have to fight aliens or something. Okay, it sounds awful, but what I will say is I don't eat meat, but the next time that you're having a sandwich with some sort of luncheon meat, just remember you're eating Liam Neeson's face. God. Thank you so much for listening to so I got really country right there. Let me try let me try let me Thank try Thank you get, so much for thank listening. Thank you so much for listening to our podcast. Thank, me, thank you for listening to our podcast. Can you do it as Kristen Stewart or Robert Pattinson? Thank you for listening to her <laughs> podcast. That's both of them, by the way. That was them together that, in the yeah. Well, anyway, we're your own personal cinematic, uh, Lorelai and Rory. Okay. Did yeah. you get that reference? I, I get that reference. Nice. Yeah. Um, check us out on social media, uh, at Sidewalk Film on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, uh, other social media platforms. Um, and uh, give us a rating and a review on iTunes or wherever you're listening to this. Spread the news about Side Talks. We could uh, definitely use more listeners, and your reviews and ratings just help raise the profile of our show. Oh my gosh, is that possible? I mean, there's nowhere to go but <laughs> there's up. There's nowhere to go but up. I mean, it's not possible to go up or down. We're just in them trenches. Anyway, we pay for ratings. Uh, We pay crispy $2 bills because we've got nothing else to our name. Corey might actually give you the baseball cap off his head, but then again, he likes it a lot, so he's shaking his head no. I haven't gotten a haircut in so long. Like, this cap's staying on. Summer cap. Anyway, thank you to Boutwell Studios for trying their their best to make us sound good, but this is impossible over here. We're we're just... It's sad. We're on... I don't even know the word... For it. That's how tired I am. We're, we're running on fumes. That's what yeah, I was trying to sad. That I'm running on fumes for so much that I couldn't even think of the phrase running on fumes, which is why I, I do a podcast. I'm running on frozen yogurt. Um, barely. Oh, oh, I got a really good smoothie on the way in. <laughs> so I guess you're healthier sh- than me. Shout out to smoothies. Keeping what us alive. Uh, thank you so much for listening. Thank you to the Batwall Studios. Thank you to Splash 96 and party, 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 party. We're out. Bye. Batwell Studios Podcast Division. Your words, our expertise.